you'll turn in your Bibles, please, too, that while well, you're there. So let's um, look at this in just a moment. But while um, some of you are still finding it, perhaps, I want to um, give a special loving greeting to John and Nancy Bloor. We love you and pray for you and miss you. And um, that general greeting is to all who are watching by the Internet. Shamala Thomas and John, Tina's mother and dad watching from London. And yes, even Heath and Jessica Dame down in Destin, Florida. We, we're glad for you and others who are with us today and worshiping with us via the Internet. When we come to Psalm 98, we come to what is called one of the royal psalms. They begin with Psalm 93 and go through Psalm 100. They have to do with God as the king of the universe. As you know, this series on the Psalms has been entitled, When God is Enough. And that is at all times. But more specifically, we've been thinking about the various emotions spoken of, opened up, and considered in the Psalms. And today, the emotion that we will be thinking about, if you have not already concluded by all of this singing, is joy. Solomon said in his famous work called Ecclesiastes, that there is a time to mourn and a time to dance. He speaks as well of a time to laugh. And as you work through the Psalms, you find times of mourning, times of sorrow, times of sin, times of discouragement, times of defeat. But in coming to Psalm 98, we are clearly coming to a time to laugh and a time to dance. Great time for joy. It has just been read, so I'm only going to point out that it breaks down very nicely and helpfully into three parts. Stanza 1 would be verses 1 through 3. Stanza 2 would be 4 through 6. And stanza 3 would be 7 through 9. In stanza 1, the focus is upon Israel, the old and the new. You see the usage of that word at the last of verse 3. In stanza 4, the focus is on the nations, all the earth. You see that in that fourth verse. And in the last stanza, verses 7 through 9, the focus is on creation or nature. But it may be more helpful for me to put it like this. In verses 1 through 3, the first stanza, we have the worshiping of God as Savior. No less than three times we find the word salvation. I'll point them out in just a moment. In stanza 2, verses 4 through 6, we have the worshiping of God as Sovereign. He is the Lord. He is the King. And in verses 7 through 9, we have the worshiping of God as judge. And we just finished singing about him coming to judge the earth. So let's look at it somewhat briefly. My approach will be to uh, treat the applications of this passage both to the old covenant people of God and to the new covenant people of God. But my emphasis is, of course, going to be on its application to us as the new Israel, those of us who are believers in Christ, who have been grafted in. In the first stanza, the worshiping of God as Savior, there are two questions that I think should be asked and answered. The first one is, what are we to do and why are we to do it? Well, the answer to question one is in the first part of verse one. Here's what we're to do. Sing to the Lord a new song. And here's why we are to do it. For, here's your reason 
for he has done marvelous things. And then the psalmist begins to tell us what three of those marvelous things are that he has done. But let's go back to question one. What are we to do? Well, let's break that down. The first thing we're to do is we're to sing. Oh, sing. Could I stop there just for a moment? Is there anyone who gathers with us on Lord's Day mornings or evenings and actually doesn't sing? You just say, well, you know, I don't have a good voice. I've never really enjoyed singing. I just, I listen, I watch, I see the words. I hope there's no such person here. Because if you are a believer, if you have experienced some of the marvelous things that God has done for you, through his saving grace, you must sing. You are told to sing. We are not merely to praise God in our testimonies and in our spoken word. We are to praise God in song. So let no one escape the responsibility. No, let no one miss out on the privilege of singing. And the second thing you'll notice is that we are to sing to the Lord. You say, well, that's what's so insightful about that? It isn't terribly insightful, but you know what? Many, many times when we sing, honestly, we're not singing to the Lord. We're not even thinking about the Lord. We're thinking about our life, our problems, the persons next to us, children. We may even be thinking about the words. That's better than not thinking. But we are to consciously, consciously communicate the words of the songs we sing to the Lord. That is, if that's what that song does. And most of the songs we sing are either prayer or petition. Occasionally we sing songs that stir up one another. And those we sing before the Lord. But here the psalmist is telling us to sing to the Lord. Do you think about singing to God? Are you lost in a sense of communion with Him in these songs? Or do you find yourself more easily lost in just audible prayer? That may be understandable, but that isn't good. We are to sing to the Lord. And I could help you musicians by just reminding you that in no less than two places, I think it's Psalm 145.7 and 147.9, you are to play your instruments to the Lord. And the third thing that we find is that we are to sing to the Lord a new song. Now, what does that mean? I think it means several things. I think it means that now that we're converted, we can truly sing a new song. It's a song about him. And it can be a very, very old song written centuries ago. But to us, it's a new song because it expresses a new understanding and a new devotion. It surely includes that. But I believe that the psalmist is telling us that our Christian lives should be lived so dynamically before God in communion with him, in observing his providences in our lives, and in coming to new and fresh insights from his word concerning his glory, that our minds are, to use the old expression, just blown. It's like, wow, look what else God has done. This kind providence that he's just done for me, this wonderful truth that he's opening to my understanding, this new insight that I see that makes him even more glorious than I thought he was before. You know what that should inspire you to do? Sing a new song. Because you have new insight. You have a new experience. The goodness and the kindness of God's providence. And so in that sense... New songs should continually be written by each of us and especially by musicians who are gifted and poets who are gifted so that the church can continue to sing in different words with different melodies, his praises. So in that sense, music must be contemporary. David used the word new. 
And contemporary music is not in and of itself sinful. And you all know that when the old hymns that we love so well and must always sing were first composed, they were contemporary. So we should have this dynamic relationship with God, which enables us to sing, to sing to the Lord, and to sing new songs because of our experience with him. Now, why are we to do it? I've already hinted. You see the word for. Whenever you see the word for, that's a grounding. That's rooting what we're supposed to do in some good reason. And the reason, as I've already indicated, is that he's done marvelous things. Verse 1, part B. And then he tells us what he means by marvelous things. And I'm quite sure that if I said, find the three that he focuses on, it would only take you a minute or two to identify three things. The first one is... It's not his right hand and his holy arm. That's the instrumentation. Yes, that speaks of his power. But what has his right hand and his holy arm done that is marvelous, that gives us reason to sing to the Lord a new song? Here it is. He has worked salvation. And for him, for his glory, our benefit. He has worked salvation. Number two, the Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness. Let's use those words. Work salvation, revealed righteousness, and thirdly, in verse 3, he has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. We are the new house of Israel, and our God remembers all of his promises and true to every one of them. He is a covenant-keeping, faithful God. He remembers to be merciful, and he remembers to be loving and faithful. These are the three things that God has done. This is the fuel of our worship. Our God has done marvelous things. Namely, he has worked salvation. He has revealed righteousness. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness. And these are things that we ought often to think about. We should say, you know what, God, you, my salvation is abundant evidence of your mighty arm and hand. I was dead in my trespasses and sins. You planned this redemption from all eternity. You sent your son in history to live in my place. You poured out your wrath upon him so that it wouldn't have to be poured out upon me. You raised him from the dead And caused him to ascend to your right hand. You sent the Holy Spirit to the church. And you sent the Holy Spirit into my life. And you caused me to be born again. And you showed me my need of a Savior. And you showed me the beauty of Christ. And you brought me to him. And I've embraced him by faith. And he's taken all of my sins. And he's given me his perfect righteousness. And I'm a new creation. And I'm able to write a new song. Surely God, you have worked salvation for me. And it's marvelous. You revealed righteousness to me. You showed me that you were a holy and a just God and that I was altogether unrighteous. You showed me that your righteousness had to be satisfied because you are a just God. And you provided for me a perfect righteousness in the person of your son, which is promised to all upon trusting him becomes their garment of clothing. And God, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for remembering your love and for being steadfast in your faithfulness. There would be no no hope for me, even as a believer, if you didn't remember your love, your eternal, everlasting steadfast love and faithfulness. And this saving grace to saints of the old covenant and to those of us who belong to the new covenant is something that all the ends of the earth have seen. The psalmist is sort of looking back on all of history, but they are seeing it, and we need to pray that they will see more and more of it. And by the way, please come tonight at 5 o'clock. Please be here. This is an unusual day in the history of our church. Four of our men, two of them pastors, are going to tell us about the works of God in the earth. First, Pastor Keith, then Andrew, 
then John, then Pastor Sam. And we're going to hear the reports, sing a song, and pray. Hear the report, sing a song, and pray. Please be here at 5 o'clock. God is showing to the ends of the earth his salvation. And we need to enter in to that display through missions. Well, let me quickly come to the second stanza, verses 4 through 6, where we have a focus upon the nations or the earth and the worshiping of God as sovereign. We, we had a what are we to do and a why are we to do it. Notice that again. What are we to do? I think this is a helpful way of looking at the second stanza. What are we to do? And, and this is the next imperative. This is the next command. This is the next thing we're told to do. So far, we've only been told to do one thing, to sing to the Lord a new song. Now we're being told a second thing. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth. The NET, the NET Bible, translates this. Break out in joyful song and sing. The NIV translates this. Burst into jubilant song with music. That's why I entitled the sermon Explosive Worship. There is a bursting forth. There is a breaking out that ought to take place in our hearts and in our voices. Sing praises to the Lord. And then he just mentions three instruments that were very common to that culture and to those days. The lyre, which is like a harp. Trumpets, of course, we can relate to. And the horn. Perhaps the horn was actually a ram's horn. It's something that we can't be certain about. But two times in the ESV, it says, make a joyful noise at the beginning of verse four and at the, at the end of verse six. I think a better translation, uh, the New American Standard reflects this as well as the Net Bible and, and really most translations. I think better translate this, shout joyfully. That, that's really the best way of capturing. Um, our friend, Dr. Bob Gonzalez, wrote a blog. Actually, I asked him, I called him and said, hey, Bob, what is the significance of the Hebrew word break forth? He said, let me do a little work on it. And I'll get back with you. And in the process, he got into Psalm 98 and he was so moved that he wrote a blog yesterday entitled Raising the Roof of God's House. The subtitle is a call to turn up the volume of congregational praise. I would challenge you sometime to look up the word loud. I mean, a shout doesn't do it for you. Have you ever heard a shout that wasn't, didn't have volume? Twenty passages in the Psalms tell us to shout to God. And often it's in song. Clap your hands, all peoples, nations. That Psalm 47 goes on to speak uh, of the Messiah coming and how all of the nations will come, will assemble with the people of the God of Abraham. It's the, it's the United Church. And after exhorting those nations and believers to clap, he says, this, Shout to the God with loud songs of joy. Wow. Shout with songs. So you don't have to think of shouting as something that you have to do in the middle of a sermon, although I would encourage you, as I will in a few moments, when your heart is blessed to feel free to say some things like praise the Lord and hallelujah and amen. But did you know that you can shout in song? We must not sing quietly, dear people. We need to sing with volume and with vigor and with earnestness. God is the one who used the word shout. And I, again, challenge you to study the word loud. Are we just trying to be loud to be loud? No. Are we trying to be loud because God can't hear? No. We're trying to be loud because it's so glorious and it stirs us up. And Pastor Bob um, did a little work on the word shout. And he says in his blog that it is the same Hebrew word ruah, 
which refers to sounding an alarm or battle cry. He gives the passages. It is the same word used to describe what Israel did when it brought down the walls of Jericho. It is the same word that was used in 1 Samuel when the Ark of the Covenant was brought into the army and the army shouted for joy and the enemy heard it at a great distance and the Bible says the ground shook. And he shows us other places where this word is, and Dave and some other musicians will understand this, this is a sforzando. It's the, it's the Italian word for a sudden impulse of volume. It's not like starting pianissimo and working up to the... It's a sudden burst of volume. I hope none of you think that's irreverent. I'll tell you what's irreverent. is not worshiping God the way he wants to be worshipped. That's irreverent. And so, what are we to do? We are to shout... Or if you prefer, make a joyful noise. We usually find that sort of humor, say, I don't have a good voice, but I can make a joyful noise. And, and that is true for some people. And it's pleasing to God if you can't sing on pitch. But better translated, shout joyfully to the Lord, all of the earth. That's what we're to do. And we're to burst. We're to have these, these experiences of almost explosive emotion where we're just so overwhelmed that we can't contain the delight. It has to have an expression. It has to have an outlet. You ever struggle with that? I'm going to tell you what my struggle is. I don't have enough of those explosions of soul. I wish I had more. We're to break forth. We're to burst forth. And we're to sing praises again to the Lord. Notice that. To the Lord. And why are we to do these things? Because He is sovereign. That's the reason. And you find it uh, in verse 6 make a joyful noise, shout joyfully before the King, the Lord. This revolves around God as King. And that's why I said earlier this is a royal psalm. Now, let me just quickly come to how we're to do it. I don't want to say much about this. And I think it's fair to say that we're certainly allowed, and probably it would be better to say encouraged, directed, to do this with instrumental accompaniment. Notice, he says, do this with the lyre, with trumpets, and with the sound of the horn. Now, those are the only three instruments that are mentioned in this particular psalm. If you go to Psalm 150, which I would ask you not to go to right now, you will find added the lute, the harp, the tambourine, the strings, pipes, and cymbals. And if you go to the rest of the psalms, you will find four more, three more instruments mentioned. They are the flute, the timbrel, and the ten strings. There are a total of ten instruments spoken of in the book of Psalms. And um, a little trivia, which instrument do you think is spoken of the most frequently in the psalms? The harp. Okay? And the lyre is very similar to the harp. So here, in this case, the psalmist is encouraging us to use instrumentation to carry the melody. Now, I could take off on that, and, but I'm only going to say that when instrumentation dominates the human voice in its offering of sacrifice to God, something's out of balance. The instruments are beautiful. They're very helpful. They stir us up and they carry the melody. And we're grateful. We're grateful for a variety of in instruments. And I will suggest to you that not, not enough instruments have yet been invented to carry the worship of God. And I believe throughout eternity, God having made us creative and inventive people, instruments will continue to be invented and created and, and developed in the worship of God because he's so worthy of the praise God is the author of music, and our ability to compose music is part of being created in his image. And we're to do this with joyful 
exuberance. Well, finally, very quickly, because I want to get to some applications. So uh, we worship God as Savior. We worship God as sovereign. And we've answered two questions. What are we to do and why are we to do it? And actually, in this case, we answered a third question. How are we to do it? And the answer was with instrumental accompaniment and with joyful exuberance. But in the third stanza, we have the worship of God as judge. And interestingly, the focus is on creation. So I'm going to ask a different question in trying to open up verses 7 through 9. The question is, who is to worship? Look at verse 7. Who is to worship? And you say, PT, it's not about who, is it, really? Look at verse 7. Let the sea. The sea is not a person, so we can't use the word who. Well, I'm using the word who because the psalmist is personifying nature. He's attributing to it human characteristics. And so the answer to who is the sea and the world of those who dwell in it. That would be people worldwide. And his second illustration is the rivers. The rivers are to clap their hands and the hills. So those are the three, the three things plus the whole world. The sea, the rivers, and the hills. And I'll only say a word about the rivers clapping um, and why the hills want to worship God, if you personify them. Here's the, here's the answer. Creation is under bondage. Have you read Romans 8 lately? It's not under bondage willingly, but by reason of him who subjected it to bondage. Creation is waiting for the adoption of the sons of God in the great day of glorification, because on that day, creation will be renewed, and we will see the new heavens and the new earth. And, it, and the psalmist wants us to think like this, that the trees and the hills or the mountains and the floods and the waters and all of creation are burdened because they're under judgment. They're in bondage and they're, they're awaiting the, the effects, the full and final effects of the atonement. Because Jesus' atonement also reverses the effects of sin on creation. And it's as if the rivers want to clap and the hills want to shout. And the psalmist is saying, go ahead and start shouting because your liberation is at hand. It's just around the corner. And in a sense, the psalmist is saying to us, everything that God has created was designed to bring him glory. And now, because of the work of Jesus Christ, it has the ability to bring him glory. So you who know him, worship him, praise him with song, and use instruments. And all creation, you worship him as well, because you're going to be released from your bondage. And all I wanted to say about clapping is there's... There's 12 places in the, in the Old Testament where the word clapping is used. Only three of them have to do with worship. Only three of them. Because clapping was sometimes applauding the new king and so forth. One of them is here. The other one is in Isaiah 55. If you want to just quickly notice this, this is a short excursus. Isaiah 55. And here you will notice in verse 12, and this is about the coming of the Messiah, by the way. This is about the work of Christ. And it says in verse 12, For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Just notice three things that are put together in close compass. Joy is the emotion. Singing 
and clapping. Maybe you don't like to see singing and clapping. I wouldn't want to see the wrong kind of singing and clapping. Thankfully, that, that's, that's not what I think is happening here on occasions when the charismatics who sit right up here <laughs> let it go. But I want you to observe that joy and singing and clapping are put together by God. In this case, it's nature. In Psalm 98, it's nature that's clapping, isn't it? It's the rivers, not the trees, the rivers. But when you come just very briefly to Psalm 47, and I alluded to it, you notice in verse 1 that all three of those things, again, are put together. And this is the only, this is the only command to clap in the, in the entirety of the Psalms for people, the only one. But Psalm 47 says, clap your hands, all peoples. And by the way, this is given to the choir master, so I believe that um, the choir master um, found ways in corporate worship for this to be implemented. Clap your hands, all peoples, but here's what I really want you to see. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. You see those three things put together again? Clapping, joy, emotion, clapping, the expression, song, the vehicle to convey words. Don't want to make a big deal out of it. Not trying to get everybody to clap. Just want you to know that clapping in worship is not sinful. It might be sinful not to clap, but it's certainly not sinful to clap. Okay? So there there we have uh, what is happening in the third stanza, stanza, it's the worship of God as judge, all creation, symbolized by the seas and the rivers and the hills. And the question again is why? 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 Here's the second four. This is the only other four in the whole psalm. You'll see it in verse 9. Be, before the Lord. Do this before the Lord. For, here's the reason, here's, here's the ground for he comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Isn't this the Christian hope? The coming of Christ to make everything right. Our Savior, who is a sovereign, will someday come as a judge. And all the evils and wickedness and injustices of the world will be reversed. He comes. He comes to rescue us. He comes to judge the world. That's why. That's why even creation should burst out and praise and worship God in anticipation of the coming of our Savior. All right. That's my feeble attempt to just sort of open up the thrust of Psalm 98, a royal psalm, three stanzas. Now, I want to come to some applications very quickly. What I'm calling observations. First one is this. What the psalm... What the Psalms prescribe with regard to worship cannot be sinful. I just want to set you free on that. What the Psalms prescribe for worship can't be sinful or God would not have prescribed these things through the Psalms. Now, some of the things that the Psalms prescribe could be culturally awkward. And I don't mean by that culturally awkward to our particular church or to any of us as individuals. I mean culturally awkward with regard to our society or the part of the world we live in. Let me explain what I mean. If you grow up in a church where nothing but a piano has been played, and you just assume that that's the instrument God designed to accompany all worship. I was talking to John DeVito about the I asked him if he'd ever seen that, that huge guitar that is used in worship, which is laid on its side. And he was taking this hook, line, and sinker. He says, I don't think I know what you're talking about. I says, well, it has 88 strings. And instead of plucking them, there's a mallet that hits the strings. And the way the mallet hits them is if you hit black and white keys made out of ivory. And I said, it's, the piano is a guitar laid on its side. It's a percussion instrument. It's a stringed Instrument, But some of us have grown up and thinking, you know, that's the only instrument that 
And I know a very high-profile pastor in our movement who said that. He said that is the superior, best instrument and should be basically the only instrument. Really? Wow. But if you start hearing a different instrument, a trumpet, a French horn, a beautiful violin, a guitar, a percussion instrument, a drum, percussion is something God created, tambourine, biblical percussion instrument, say, that's not part of my culture. That's awkward to me. I understand it is awkward. Anything new is awkward. The question is, is it awkward to our culture as a society in this part of the world, or is it just awkward to me? Some of you have found it awkward when people raise their hands in front of you. You're just not comfortable with that. You've never seen that before. It feels charismatic, even though the Bible prescribes that many times. What you have to do, of course, is look at that person in front of you and say, God, I'm so thankful that they're engaged in worship. I don't have to lift my hands. My heart, they're they're being lifted in my soul. But when I see that sister raise her hands, I told somebody this morning, I'm just going to say this, I'm being really candid. Sometimes when I sit up at the front and I look around my son and look at my daughter-in-law, Tina, And I see her just caught up in worship. She's not one of these. She's one of these. Oh, it melts my heart. It it, it fires me up. I see see engagement. I want that. That that fuels the, the emotion of my soul. It doesn't distract me. But if it does, you know, you have to just say, God, I'm so thankful that they're engaged. That's encouraging to me. And you'll find that after a while, it's not awkward. So, of course, there are things that are awkward. The things that are common to our culture, like raising hands and shouting for joy and bowing in humility. And yes, clapping hands upon joyful occasions. That's common to our society. There's nothing Hebrew about that. Tearing your clothes and putting ashes on your head and wearing sackcloth, that's Hebrew. Okay, go to a game and watch the fans shout and watch them jump. And I'm not recommending that we jump here. Watch them shout. Watch them clap. And you'll see that, you know what, that's a part of our culture. And when you watch the Olympics, they do it in every nation. They all clap for their hero. So am I going to say, well, I'm just not used to that. That's not part of my culture. I said to a sister in Christ this morning, if I was counseling you and your husband, I'll tell you who it was. It was Carl and Dave. I wasn't counseling. I think you guys doing okay? Sorry right now? Okay. All right, good. Carla's going like this. I said to to Carla, I said, Carla, if you and Dave were struggling and you said to me what many women say, my husband doesn't know how to show affection. He never tells me he loves me. He never touches me. He's cold. He's that way to our children. And I say, Dave, is that true? And Dave says, it is true, PT. I said, what's the deal? And he says, well, you know, Pastor, that's the kind of home I grew up in. I just wasn't taught. That wasn't a part of my culture. You think I'm going to say, well, Dave, I affirm you then. And Carla, I'm sorry, but that just wasn't a part of his culture. I'm going to say, Dave, guess what, buddy? Start Being affectionate to your wife. Start telling her you love her. Be affectionate to your children. Hug them. Touch them. Kiss them. Break your cultural barriers. And I think probably all of us need a little help along those lines to realize that the culture we have inherited is not necessarily the culture that God said, this is it. This is it. Don't do anything besides this. When the Bible encourages us to be exuberant in worship, to shout for joy, to lift our hands in praise, to have outbursts of praise to God in song, I'm sorry. I'm not going to let culture tell me what the Bible means. I want the Bible to mold and shape my culture. 
That makes some of you nervous because you think, that's moving toward charismania. No, it's moving toward the Bible. Colossians 3.16 commands us to sing psalms, doesn't it? Commands us to sing psalms. It's part of the regulative principle. Did you know that? Not only singing, singing psalms. And we need to keep working on singing psalms. We do quite a few, but we probably need to do better at that. But you know what I find ironic and interesting? We sing the psalms in obedience to God's word. This is almost humorous, but it's not really humorous. It's interesting. We sing the psalms that tell us what we should do, but we don't do what the psalms tell us to do. Uh, I'm going to be obedient. Uh, Heritage is obedient. We sing the psalms. But when the psalms tell us to break forth in praise and to shout for joy, I'm not going to do that. I'll sing the psalm, God. I'm not going to do what the psalm says because that's uncomfortable culturally, and I think that's going to send us down the slippery slopes. So, ironically, we're obedient in singing, but disobedient in doing sometimes. Now, is it, is it a sin if we don't do these things? Some of you are probably saying that right now. P.T., you are actually saying, I'm a sinning when I'm not doing some of those things. You're, you're suggesting that I'm sinning if I don't lift my hands, or if I don't clap, or if I don't ever shout for joy. Am I sinning? My answer to you is first, no, and secondly, maybe. Listen to me. No, in the sense that we don't have to use a lyre or a trumpet or a horn. Dave, our worship today was unbiblical. Where's the lyre? I didn't hear a horn today. God's word says to use a lyre and a horn and a trumpet. Of course not. And there are all the other instruments that I mentioned. It's not a sin in and of itself not to do these things. No. And no in the sense that we don't have to have instrumental accompaniment. It's okay to sing a cappella. I love a cappella because that really emphasizes, and this is going to sound like I'm trying to take credit to myself, but when we sing a cappella, a lot of times it's because I go to Dave and I go to Brandon and I go to the other Dave and I say, guys, we need to hear just the human voice more. I love it. The human voice. So, obviously, it's not a sin to not have instruments. No, in the sense that we don't have to lift our hands in worship. Did you hear me? Please, don't a single person go out of here and say, P.T. says we got to raise our hands in worship. No, I did not say that. So the answer is no. But the answer is also maybe or yes in this sense. Yes, it's a sin. If we don't embrace what is behind these words or what is in the soul of these words, you say, what do you mean? Well, okay, what is behind the words new song? It's a dynamic Christian life that has new and fresh experiences with God and new insights into his word that thrills the soul. That's what's behind it. You better have that. You may not be a composer, but in your heart, there's a new song. What's behind the words sing to the Lord? I've already explained. It's concentrating our words to him. It's communing with him. What's behind the word joyfully? An emotion, a wonderful emotion of glee and happiness and delight. What's behind the words lift up your hands? The, you know what the idea behind the idea is to you, God, all the praise belongs are from you, God, All of my help comes. I lift up my eyes to the hills, but my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Do you have to lift up your hands? No. But in your soul, behind those words, the spirit of dependence and all praise going to him is important. And the same is true with regard to clapping hands or shouting for joy. Or even behind the word loud. So am I saying, if you don't clap or you don't raise your hands, you're sinning? No. I want to say this once more. 
but neither are those who do those things sinning. That's for sure. I'm not sure you're not sinning. Well, I'm, I'm going to put it this way. I'm sure that you're not sinning unless you're just repressing your emotion by not raising your hands or clapping. But let me tell you something that I'm more sure of. This one I'm really sure of. I'm really sure that if your heart is overflowing with joy and exuberance to God and you can't help but lift up your hands or in an extremely joyful song where the music and the meter of the music is appropriate, that you just break out with clapping of hands because you're just so, or at the end of a song, you break out with clapping because the words overwhelmed you. I'm sure of this. That is not a sin. Not when the Bible encourages us to do it. That's what I'm saying. Listen to Edwards. Listen to Wesley. Listen to Spurgeon. Edwards said, I consider my duty to raise the affections of my hearers as high as I possibly can, provided they are affected with nothing but truth and with affections that are not disagreeable to the nature of what they are affected with. Quote, the duty of singing praises to God seems to be given wholly to excite and express Religious affections. Excite? I don't think I like that word, Edwards. There is no other reason why we should express ourselves to God in verse rather than prose and with music, except that these things have a tendency to move our affections. Guess what? God created music to move the affections. And worship music can move the affections. Wesley put it this way. He said, sing lustily and with good courage. Beware of singing as if you were half dead or half asleep. But lift up your voice with strength. Be no more afraid of your voice now, no more ashamed of its being heard than when you sang the songs of Satan. That's what Wesley said. Listen to Spurgeon on this psalm. He said, every form of exaltation should be used. Every kind of music pressed into the service. Every kind of music pressed into the service. Shouldn't we confine our music style to one style, Mr. Spurgeon, that came from one brief period in the history of the church? which we somehow assume is God's favorite period? No, he says, press, press all these, press every kind into the service until the accumulated praise causes the skies to echo with joyful tumult. There is no fear of our being too hearty and magnifying the God of our salvation. Loud let our hearts ring out the honors of our conquering Savior. With all our heart, let us extol the Lord who has vanished all our enemies. He will do this best, who is most in love with Jesus. And I'm going to forego another one where he says, you know, when an earthly potentate comes, we blow trumpets and, and we shout. But when the King of kings and the Lord of lords comes before our minds, somehow we don't have the liberty. Dear brothers and sisters, I ask you this question, is our problem at Heritage that we just put too much heart and soul and energy and effort and emotion into our worship? Is that our problem? How many of you have gone away recently? You know what, I just, I just had so much, I had too much soul in my worship. I had too much heart. There was too much vigor. No, no. Is that the problem with the movement that we are a part of? Our movement is characterized by too much emotion or is it just possible please be humble enough to answer this is it just possible that our movement is characterized by too little emotion is God on the day of judgment going to call any of you to account for being too joyful in worship is he going to say And what about that day that some of you were so joyful that you broke out with clapping? What about reverence for God? Is he going to say that to us on the day of judgment? He's going to say, why didn't some of you talk to Derek Minton and say, Derek, hold yourself down. Don't be clapping after a great chorus, after a great hymn that expresses a great truth. You're disturbing worship. You're distracting us. 
Is God going to ask us why we didn't do that? I don't think so. Our joy and volume and shouting to the Lord and crying out, Hallelujah, praise the Lord, bless the Lord, glory to God, thank you, Jesus. We can sing thank you, Jesus, but don't ever say it. What's the difference between those things and amen? We can do an amen. We can do an amen and get just a little crack of a smile in our face. But where is the exuberance? Where is the joy? Where is the outburst? Where is the explosive worship? Are these things irreverent? Maybe by your cultural definition, but not by the Bible's. Dear people, one of my burdens for Heritage Baptist Church is that we keep making progress in the vigor and the vitality and the earnestness and the joy of our worship. You really do need to come up here sometime and sit on the front and hear what it's like. And I don't want to make this sound like a proud observation. It's humbling. But people who visit our church, Reformed Baptists who visit our church, say that we sing with an unusual vigor and earnestness and joy and delight and enthusiasm and energy. I take that as an encouragement because I don't think it's phony. I think it's rooted in these fours. For our God has done marvelous things. But are we where we need to be? Thank you, Pastor Keith, for praying what you prayed today. You said we, we need to make more progress in that. My heart was in that prayer. Dear people, I don't want Heritage Baptist Church to be a nice, little, quiet, docile, tame respectable, status quo, Reformed Baptist Church. I'll admit that I'm speaking for myself. I doubt very much if I'm speaking only for myself. I'm going to say that again. And if I'm wrong, you're going to have to help me, or you're just going to have to deal with this until I do retire. (laughs) Thanks for the encouragement that maybe I'm not quite there yet. I don't think I am. Listen to me. I don't want this church to be a nice, little, quiet, docile, tame, respectable, status quo, reformed Baptist church. Because Andy Hamilton is right. We're not having much of an impact upon the world. We're not having much of an impact upon evangelicalism. We are headed to be a footnote in history. But we're doing it all right. Neither do I want us to be some kind of a wild, unbiblical, disordered, chaotic fellowship of believers. You know that. You know that. I want us to be a dynamic church in the power of the Holy Spirit. I want us to experience what one author calls pneumatic Christianity, and it doesn't have anything to do with being a continuationist. It's about those works of the Holy Spirit that are real and operative today, leading and guiding and anointing and unctionizing. That's my vision and my dream. I want us to be a doctrinally sound, ecclesiastically well-ordered, evangelistically passionate, missionally driven, community burdened. But now listen, unrestrainedly, enthusiastically, high-spiritedly, dynamically, vigorously, affectionately, worshipful. I want unconverted people to come among us and say what they said of the church in Corinth. Surely God is among this people. These people love their God. They love one another. They love the word. They're joyful. They're exuberant. They're energetic. That's what this psalm is about. It's about exuberance and joyful worship. Now, should this be our only emotion? By no means. Listen to me again carefully. We need as a church to know how to be humble and to be broken and to be repentant and to weep and to prostrate ourselves before God in his word, especially when we see his holiness and our sinfulness and judgment to come. Our hearts need to be broken when we sing, stricken, smitten, and afflicted. See him hanging on the tree. Our hearts need to be sad and broken when we sing. We have not loved thee as we ought. We have not known thee as we ought. Those times are real. But the predominant, the predominant emotion of our worship, the default emotion of our worship 
ought to be delight and joy. You know why? Because we are the redeemed of God. That's why. Because we are the forgiven of God. We are justified. We are adopted. We are certain for heaven. God is remembering his steadfast and love and faithfulness toward us. We are in his son. We are bound for heaven. Our names are written on the palms of his hands. The predominant emotion of our worship should be joy and celebration. The predominant, not the exclusive. And some of us, some of you, but some of us, including me, need to get over our cultural, somber, restrained, woe is me-ism. Woe is me-ism. If Psalm 98 is a description of what Old Covenant worship should have looked like and sounded like, how much more celebratory should New Covenant worship be? It should be characterized by passionate joy, delight, and exuberance. I conclude. Dear brothers and sisters, we have infinite reason. I'm using that word infinite on purpose. Listen to me. We have infinite reason to be joyful. We need to concentrate as better than we've ever concentrated before on singing to the Lord. We need to be composing new songs. We need to be shouting joyfully. We need to be breaking out and bursting forth and, yes, exploding. And the fuel for this kind of worship is in the gospel. It's in this little phrase, for he has done marvelous things. For our Lord is coming to judge the earth. Dear ones, our best worship has been woefully deficient. We have not loved the Lord with all of our hearts. None of us have worshipped the way we ought to have worshipped. But thank God, our defective worship is purified by the blood and representation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is one, there is one, only one, who has loved God And worship God perfectly. And he did it for us. His name is Jesus. And he by his grace has put every single one of us who are believers on a course which guarantees our future sinless worship. Amen. And as McShane put it, now... We anticipate and we say, when I stand before the throne, dressed in beauty, not my own. When I see thee as thou art, love thee with unsinning heart. Then, Lord, shall I fully know, not till then, how much I owe. And I think maybe we should add a verse that ends like this. When I stand before the throne, dressed in beauty, not my own. When I see thee as thou art, love thee with the unsinning heart. Then, Lord, shall I fully, fully praise. And that for countless, endless days. I was going to have a sing, but I'm not, because I'm over time. Joy to the world. It seems out of context. I just ask you to look up the words again because Watts wrote Joy to the World based on this psalm. Sometime read it. With that in mind, may the Lord help us to worship him better and better and better. Let us pray. Father in heaven, you deserve a better, a purer, a more vigorous, a more joyful, a more humble a more energetic, a more loud worship than we've ever given you before. And we pray that you will help us give that to you, this side of heaven. But how we thank you that a day will come 
when we will be able to worship you free of sin and all of the inhibitions and all of the restraints that culture has placed upon us. We look forward to that day. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the king. You are the savior. You are the sovereign. You are the judge. And we look forward to your coming. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.